Well, what a privilege it is to gather and worship the Lord and to remember this evening to thank God for the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century and our spiritual heritage. I'd like to ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, the first chapter. Galatians, the first chapter. And our focus will be on verses 6 through 10, but I would like to begin at verse 1. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father and our God, how thankful we are for our rich heritage in the Protestant Reformation, and that this was simply a recovery of the truth of the Word of God that was preached by the apostles and by Christ himself. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we believe sola scriptura, that we will be deeply committed, deeply committed to those things which are right and true, to the revelation that you have given to us in Holy Scripture, and that under Scripture alone we might find our lives completely dominated by the teaching of the Word of God. Help us with Luther to know that our consciences are bound by the Word of God. And we ask that your rich blessing will be upon its exposition this night, that our hearts may be filled with the truth and that we also may take seriously what it means to be a Christian in the day in which we live. And these things we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Galatians chapter 1, the first 10 verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are a reformed Church, And when we say reformed, that simply is church historical language for a recovery of biblical Christianity. One of the things that I think is very important is that we develop in the upcoming generations of our congregation a reformed consciousness. They need to be aware that they are reformed Christians and that this is a reformed church and that we believe the theology of the Protestant Reformation. Now, when we think of that word Protestant, of course, we remember that Luther, for example, protested against the falsities of the Church of Rome, 
But protestare does not simply mean to protest against, but also can have the meaning of confess. And so it is a positive confession of those things that are true, those things that the Bible teaches, those things that we are to believe. The Reformation is what we so desperately need today in the lives of God's people and in the churches of our generation. The Reformation was an attentive listening to the Word of God. And we need, more than anything, that attitude among us today. This always leads the church to oppose, but also positively to confess the truth, to oppose error, to confess the gospel. And it was a restoration of biblical Christianity in doctrine and in life. Now, rarely do I think that it's appropriate to be verbally harsh with, with others. I think that ordinarily, the minister of the word and we as Christians are called upon to be gentle, and we are to correct with, uh, with a gentle spirit. We are to be meek and lowly. After all, if we're saved, we're saved by grace. But there is at least one time in which it is right and appropriate for those in church leadership sometimes to speak harshly to others, and that is when religious leaders deny salvation by grace through Christ alone and would leave God's people in the bondage of pastoral cruelty. And that is what led Martin Luther to oppose the Pope and the Church of Rome in the 16th century. That's why if you read his writings and Calvin's, when they speak of the Church of Rome, they're very harsh Not because they did not believe that there might be genuine Christians within those churches, but because they did, and they believed that they were not hearing the gospel that would bring them full assurance of faith. Now, remember the background to Galatians, just briefly to remind you, the Judaizers are saying, sure, we believe in the grace of God, we believe the gospel, but don't you see we need a plus. We need to add something to the gospel. Not only is there Christ, but in addition to him, there is circumcision, there's the Mosaic law, the Mosaic economy. Yeah, we believe the gospel, but also we would add to it these things. We're not denying the gospel, they would say, but we are saying these things also are necessary if one would be accepted with God. And that's why I think we can go from the book of Galatians directly to the 16th century and the fight of Luther and Calvin and other Protestant reformers, and we can say there is a real compatibility between the book of Galatians and the fight that Luther was involved in in the 16th century. So as we come to this text, notice first of all with me that Paul is amazed at their defection from the gospel. Usually in Paul's epistles, what you would find at this section after, oh, say about verse 4, verse 5, is a really wonderful, warm, pastoral introduction, a thanksgiving, but the thanksgiving is absent here. Notice that it's abrupt, Paul is angry, he's passionate, he's denunciatory. If anything, what we find here is real pastoral pugilism. He's coming out with his boxing gloves on. He's ready to fight because if salvation is by works, if there is any work or merit that we contribute, then Christ died for nothing. And so he expresses amazement. The Galatians had eagerly received the gospel, 
And now they are turning, and it's a present tense, present continuous. They are turning to the man-made religion of works espoused by the Judaizing party. He uses the word called in verse 6. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. We sinners are not aware of our need. We do not seek God. God is the seeking God. And calling underscores that we are saved by grace. Works righteousness reverses this. It makes us the seeker, not God. But when he stresses that this calling is in the grace of Christ, he contrasts with the purpose of the false teachers who would redefine grace and deny its reality, the true gospel that he has preached not long ago to these churches that now are quickly deserting the one who called them. The point here is very simple and profound. If we forsake the gospel, we forsake the God of the gospel not only by subtracting from the gospel, but by adding to the gospel. Our relationship with God is not attained by law-keeping. Our relationship to God, let us ever confess, is by sheer, free, sovereign grace alone. And this is what Luther came to understand in his tower experience, his conversion, if you will, when he came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you his own words. Here's what Luther said. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. The passage, of course, the first chapter of Romans, verses 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And the whole passage is related to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. He goes on to say, day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally God had mercy on me and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My, man, my mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other Phrases such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as intensely as I had before hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. Because now he realized that the alien righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, not something we earn, something that is provided 
completely by Christ through his sacrifice for us was the only way in which he would be accepted by God. You see, what Luther found in Roman Catholicism was that Roman Catholicism defined justification as an infusion of grace rather than an imputation of righteousness. By impute, we simply mean that the Lord grants to us in his grace the righteousness of Christ and makes that righteousness our own so that in the court of law, in the court of law, we are declared righteous in the presence of God. That declarative righteousness is something that was denied by Rome then and is denied by Rome now. The upshot was that Sorrow for sin was the predominant viewpoint in the Roman Catholic view. Now, certainly we should be sorry for sin. But there's something wrong in our lives when we are constantly morbidly introspective. And that was Roman Catholicism. It eclipsed the joy of the gospel. In Roman Catholicism, one typically can never be sure of salvation in this life. That's Roman Catholic dogma. You cannot have assurance of faith. In Luther and in Paul, the gospel is a matter of great joy because assurance of faith is grounded in this alien righteousness that is reckoned, that is imputed to the believer in Jesus Christ. Roman Catholicism destroys the certainty of faith, and therefore Luther understood it was pastorally cruel. And for Roman Catholicism, justification is a process for which we strive. For Luther and Calvin and Paul, let me stress, justification is an act, not a process. So in chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, the apostle says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because... By works of the law, no one will be justified. And what is the basis of this imputed righteousness, this reckoning of righteousness to our account? Well, in chapter 3, verses 10 and following, we find it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, that's the freedom. Christ became my curse bearer for me in order that his perfect record, his righteousness might be received by me by faith. And faith, of course, is a grace. It's not a work. There's nothing you, there's nothing that I, there is nothing the sinner can do to earn a relationship with God. It is all of grace. Now, that's Paul's concern. So the second thing we see that he underscores in Galatians chapter 1 is that there is no other gospel. No other gospel. Notice verses 6 and 7a. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel 
of Christ, which is not another. Grace means it is all of God by adding something, anything, no matter what or how small we destroy the concept of grace. It is either our acceptance with God, our justification is either all of grace or all of works. There's no middle ground. And if it is by works, there's no end to it. And if it is by works, our works are never good enough and we are lost. And so the ESV puts it well here that those Judaizers want to distort the gospel. The NIV translates it trying to pervert. Literally, it is they are wishing to distort the gospel. It is deliberate. To trouble, to unsettle was their goal, claiming that it leads to a better understanding of the gospel. Purpose to lead astray, perverting the gospel. Pervert means to change something. The word means to change something often into its opposite. And that's why he says this gospel is not another gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. It is a perversion of the gospel. Now, what do we face today as those who are the inheritors of the theology of the Protestant Reformation? We face, in a way that has never been faced before by Christians, we face syncretism. Of course, the best example of that is Islam and Christianity, and we are told on all hands that really, at bottom, it's the same, that Allah and the God that Christians worship, that this is the same God. And there has even been the development of this word, which is blasphemous, Chrislam, so that there's a combination of Christianity and Islam, and you find that throughout Europe. There are so many sacred books, we're told. What right do you have to say that yours is the one? How do we answer that? The answer is this. The Bible and the Koran are diametrically opposed. What right do you have to relativize Scripture's absolute claims, thus changing the Christian faith into its opposite? And yes, we do have an answer. Mohammed is in his grave. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was raised on the third day from the grave. He lives. And this is history, real, true history. Now today in Germany, there's a modern-day Lutheran minister who's fighting for the gospel in Germany. I read this some, some weeks back, and I bring it into the pulpit tonight just to illustrate what's happening in, um, in Germany. Today, the land of Luther, the land of the Reformation... This, uh, this news source, and it is a news source that I have checked very carefully. Uh, this news source, there are many, many references to this you can find online. A great interview with this pastor. Maybe we can send it out to you. have to ask Bill about that. The news, says, the news source says, True followers of Jesus Christ in the country, in Germany, are under fire in the media by their own government and even denounced by fellow Christians whose faith has been subverted, according to Pastor Olaf Latzel of Bremen, Germany. In today's Germany, Latzel said, Traditional Christian teaching is now viewed by many as bigoted, hateful, and even unchristian. 
I'm only preaching the gospel in a clear way, he says. I think it's my duty to do this preaching in this way for our Lord. Lotzel speaks his mind out, standing against what he sees as the spirit of compromise that seems to have swallowed Germany and the German state church. He has infuriated the German government and sadly even some German pastors who wanted to reconcile with non-Christians. Lotzel said the fundamental question in the German church today is, is who God really is. He said some of his fellow Christian pastors believe Allah in Jesus Christ, the Christian God is the same God. But if you ask a Muslim, does your God have a son? He would say no. Our Christian God has a son. His name is Jesus Christ. So they are not the same. If you speak out loud and clearly, says Lotzel, if you speak out loud and clearly about the truth of the Bible, that there's only one way to heaven, and this way is Jesus Christ. There is only one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is no other God beside him. Then you have a problem, he says. Seventy German pastors gathered in Bremen this year under the banner of diversity to denounce Lotzel. Accused of making hate speeches, the public prosecutor investigated him but later cleared him. But this did not stop the Bremen Parliament from passing. Did you hear that? The Bremen, the state parliament, did not stop the Bremen Parliament from passing a resolution to condemn this pastor. The first time a German pastor was condemned by a German parliament since World War II. Why? Because he's preaching Christ. This is one sign that you're on the right way in preaching when you get problems, he said. If you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and everyone is clapping his hand, then you have a problem. Because if you're telling the truth from the Bible, then the devil will come and he will fight against you in several ways. He will fight against the word of God. Lotzel is the pastor of St. Martin's Church in Bremen, where the great hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, was written in 1679 by the church's pastor, Joachim Neander. That's a pastor for whom we need to pray. And that's why Paul is upset. That's why he's angry. He's angry because he loves. He loves his people. And there's syncretism now in the church. And the gospel is being denied at its very core in a very, very subtle way. As to man... His heart is stained, his mind is darkened, his heart is dead to God, and he is without hope. As for God, God is just and must pronounce the final word on sin. His justice is inflexible. If you know that about man and you know that about God, the only hope is grace. The only hope is the gospel. So that in the cross, as someone said years ago, Paul saw a moral and spiritual more than equivalent for the judgment. The cross took at once that central place in the universe which had been held by the great white throne. It solved the problem of God's righteousness and man's sin. And that's why Paul is angry. That's why Luther opposed the Pope. Because we may not say Jesus plus, but we must preach Christ alone. So thirdly, you'll notice in this text that Paul denounces those who pervert the gospel. Paul denounces those who pervert the gospel, as Luther was called upon to do, as Calvin was called upon to do. 
And in verse 8, he includes himself in that denunciation if he were to deviate from the gospel. He says in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. But Paul says, here's how you judge my ministry. You judge my ministry by my faithfulness to the gospel. Judge my ministry by faithful to the gospel, to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Can you imagine a more authoritative messenger than an angel from heaven? But if an angel comes to you and preaches some other gospel than the gospel of imputed righteousness, then even that angel is to be accursed. Today the fad is putting experience in the first place, not let me emphasize not eloquence, not charisma, not personality. What matters in the pulpit is the message that is proclaimed. It is not the true gospel because of the one who preaches. It is the true gospel because of the one who gave the message to preach and because of the message that is being preached. May false preachers, says Paul, be cursed. He says it in verse 8. He says it in verse 9. He repeats it. What I said when I was with you before, I'm saying to you again, to add law to grace as a means of acceptance with God nullifies grace. Well, you say, well, it's just a little compromise, just a little bit of works, just a little bit of human merit. And how many times have I said to us, let's always remember that, at least in the past, the way it was done when you kill the rat, is that you mingled 1% arsenic with 99% cornmeal, but it was the 1% arsenic that killed the rat. Not even a little of our merit. If there's one stitch of your merit or mine in the righteousness of Christ, we're lost. Luther understood that. Calvin understood that. That's basic for the Reformed faith. Leon Morris says on this text, if salvation comes by God's free grace, then it is not earned by keeping the law. If it comes by keeping the law, it is not of God's free grace. So the gospel brings freedom, and that's why the anathemas. A different gospel brings judgment. And by anathema, he means if anyone preach any other gospel than this true revealed gospel, let him be damned. That's strong language, isn't it? And that's in God's hand, not my hand, but this is still what God's word says. Now, you know this in your conscience. Every believer here knows this in his own conscience. You slip into thinking we can earn God's favor by what you do. We can become, we can become anxious and our heart condemns us. The Belgic Confession of Faith One of the great Reformation confessions was written in 1561. Guido de Bray, who later was martyred in 1567 for his faith, burned at the stake, is the one who wrote this great confession. This Belgic confession is a confession that is one of the three forms of unity, that is three confessional statements of historic Dutch Reformed Christianity. And the Belgic Confession says, I dearly love these words. 
our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. May I read that to you again? Our consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. And that's what Martin Luther experienced in his early days. Here's what he said. As a monk, I labored under the impression that my salvation was lost when I experienced fleshly desire. That is, evil lust, sensuality, anger, hatred, envy, and so forth toward my brother. I tried many things. I confessed daily, but I made no progress. The evil lust of the flesh continued to return. As a result, I did not find peace, but only further vexed myself. I was not sufficiently sorry for my sins. I forgot something in my confession. So he would go before Stalpitz, his confessor, this Martin Luther, sleepless nights, cold on the floor of his cell, hair shirts, beating himself. He would go before his confessor, Stalpitz, and Stalpitz would have to say, Luther, come back to me when you have some real sins to confess. Because his conscience was so vexed and troubled, and he needed the gospel. And then the time came when he began to understand that gospel. The just shall live by faith. By faith. It's not my merit. It's not what we earn. Luther, by the grace of God, came to understand it was altogether the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, received by faith alone, that justifies us in the presence of God. There's something else to see in this text, however, and that is that because we are just, we are now free. We're free to please God. Not serving him as if, oh, this God is going to condemn me, but I'm free. My soul is free. My heart is free. My sins are forgiven. Luther hated God. He says that. He hated God. And it was only when he came to understand grace that his heart was changed and he came to love God. And he realized that he was free to please him. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And evidently to discredit Paul, he was accused of living for man's favor. The words just used prove that this is not the case. Paul is striving to please God, not to earn his favor, but to uphold the gospel of grace in his life and ministry, no matter what persecution might bring. He is pleasing God, not man. But the temptation for the minister, for the church, for the leadership, the temptation, I think this pastor from Germany is trying to call us, the trap is wanting to become popular and relevant. I really dislike that word. Relevant rather than faithful. 
So the temptation is for the church to dull the edge, to hold back the truth, to say everything with a sickly smile, to avoid the judgment, sin, hell, to try to win men by worldly means, and we blunt the gospel of grace. And we have become often, especially in the American church scene, we have become thoroughly man-centered. And it is impossible to live to please man and at the same time live to please God. It's impossible. Paul is Christ's slave. The slave is completely under his master's authority. Wholehearted devotion to Christ is called for. Serving Christ means surrendering the desire to curry men's favor. And this is freedom. Undoubtedly, there are some people here, and you're bound by the desire to please people. That's, that's how you live life. The gospel does something better. The gospel frees you and enables you to serve people without concern for brownie points or concern for what people think about you. In serving others, you're serving Christ. The gospel frees you from looking over your shoulder and wondering what people think of you and how you must position yourself for advancement. Or as in the case of ministry, it enables you to do what pleases God, whether men like it or not. And don't you see that this is the result of Luther's doctrine, Paul's doctrine of justification, If God accepts me, what does it matter what man thinks of me? Right? If God accepts me, I'm free to serve you because I don't care what you think of me. I only care that I show the love of Christ because the grace of God has been shown to me. Do you understand that relationship, that connection? That's why Luther could say, and the words are classic, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's an understanding of the gospel. Well, this is Sunday night. I shouldn't go on forever. So let me just bring three things as we together thank God for the Protestant Reformation that we really need to take with us. Christ our Lord is risen from the dead. He speaks to us in his word in the present tense. Let me say these three things then. Uh, First of all, Paul's doctrine of sovereign free grace, imputed righteousness, received by faith alone, calls us to be vigilant as a congregation and especially vigilant as office bearers in the church. We should understand that people are not content with the gospel and they want novelty. Don't give in to it. Be sure of those who teach you that they are really committed to the gospel and preaching Christ no matter what. Is Jesus Christ always heard? It's not PC? Well, what's biblical should be the question. And on the issue of the gospel... On the issue of the gospel, there are many things about which we can be very tolerant with one another, but on this issue of what is the gospel, be intolerant. And remember, the Galatians quickly deserted the gospel. And so when the Protestant reformers preached, Scripture alone 
Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to God alone be the glory, as the slogans that summarized what the minister is to preach and what God's people are to believe. These are non-negotiable. And we need to be praying that the church has returned to these things in our day and in our age. You know, my son is in England, and what he has told me, he's very thoroughly conversant with the history of Anglicanism. And, of course, there's a strong movement for reformation in the church and so forth. But he says, you can just look at the church. Every time the church has slipped more and more and more into apostasy, it's because... At every point, they wanted to be relevant. Forget that. Just be the church. Second thing that I want to say, though all of us need to hear it, I want to speak to ministers of the gospel who are here. So that's Jeff, that's me, Joel, who is on his way, some others of you who may be here who are ordained ministers of the word and sacrament, or some of you young men who perhaps one day will be ministers of word and sacrament. Calvin, to quote another Protestant reformer, Calvin said this, All those who have the responsibility and the duty of teaching the church of God must forget the favor and approval of the world. If they do not, they can never carry out their duty faithfully. For men will always desire to be pandered to and cannot bear being reproved for their sins as they deserve. That's Calvin. And sometimes I think as I I look at the church scene, and I know that the Reformation is completely dependent on God who gave men like Luther and Calvin, but I think you'll understand my point. I just look out and I say, if the Reformation depended on men in our pulpits today, would it have ever happened? It's not too much for the church to expect Christ's ministers that they conduct their lives and ministries in the fear of God. You should expect that of us. And you should pray for us that this is how we will live. That we will watch our life and doctrine closely. And that in this great tradition, this great pastoral tradition that comes from the Protestant Reformation, that we will live with the dignity that ministers in that tradition are called upon to live because it's really simply the teaching of the pastoral epistles in the Word of God. And then the third thing is this, every person needs to know the message of redemption. Do you know? Do you really understand it? Do you know what we're preaching tonight? Do you get it at all? You need a Savior. Give up on thinking that you have a drop of merit. Otherwise, you will not come to Christ. People did not preach, Paul did not preach Christ for healthy people. Paul did not preach Christ for philosophers. He did not preach for scholars. Though you may be a scholar and you may be a philosopher, the gospel doesn't come to you with any qualifications admiringly. It comes to you as a sinner. That's all. 
It comes to you and to me as sinners in need of grace. We're much too healthy in our day. We blame shift. We denominate sin by every other name possible. We give sin medical names. What our age lacks is despair. I mean real, deep, true despair that comes from knowing that there's a holy God and that I'm accountable to Him. That's lacking. And where, where this is present, where God is at work to open the heart that we see ourselves to be sinners, nothing but the joy, Luther says somewhere, it is such joy as to shatter the heart. Only the joy of the gospel of free grace can answer the need that we sinners have as we stand before an infinitely holy God. Nothing but Jesus Christ risen from the dead will do. Nothing but His righteousness, His perfect record, received by faith, an alien righteousness, not my own, but one that comes from Him, only that will do. And you'll feel your need to be reconciled to God, and no one could do this work but Jesus. Trusting Him becomes the supreme reality of your life. And indeed, Christ is the supreme reality of the universe. And that is why Paul is intolerant, because we cannot be kind if we do not say to the world, there is no other way to salvation, there is no other way to God, there is no other mediator between God and man but the man Christ Jesus. Luther was right, Calvin was right. Pastor Lotzel in Germany is right. Paul was right. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And that's what it means, essentially, to be a Reformed church. But if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes in his heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. We need reformation today. We need true, genuine, biblical revival today. We need to be able to sing and to pray, let the amen sound from your people again, the great Neander hymn written in Lotzel's church over there in Bremen. Let the amen sound from his people again. Will you pray? Will you simply not thank God, but will you pray in thanksgiving to God for what he did in this powerful movement in the 16th century that changed the face of Europe? Will you pray that he will do it again? Will you pray that? And God's people said, Amen. Amen.